Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 26. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We've begun reading from my first novel, Winds of Wyoming, and we're now in Chapter 3, which is told from our heroine, Kate Nielsen's point of view. The branches of the evergreens that fringed the Battle Mountain Highway danced in the wind and scented the air. The same fresh breezes swirled through Kate's car windows, lifting her hair. Each time she saw a break in the trees along the highway, she slowed to gaze at mountains as far as she could see. But it was when she approached a clearing with wildflowers sprinkled across a sunny hillside like confetti flung from a rainbow from a rainbow that she stopped for pictures. She'd taken several at the overlook, but this was an opportunity for wildflower close-ups. When she returned to her car, she noticed a brown pickup parked some distance behind her car. Was it the same one she'd seen in the church's parking lot? Probably not. She hadn't paid much attention to it. Maybe she was losing her street smarts after all, which might be a good thing. Time to stop acting like a criminal, always watching her back. Kate started the engine and pulled onto the highway. The tangy smell of sagebrush drifted through the windows, though the pickup didn't immediately follow. As soon as it appeared in the rearview mirror, she steered to the right and waved it ahead, something she'd seen other slow Western drivers do. But this driver didn't take the hint. Fine, it was just too pretty a day to hurry. She turned her attention to a herd of antelope that stopped grazing long enough to watch her pass by. Behind them, a loop of cottonwood trees followed the river's meander through the valley. A long-legged, long-eared rabbit hopped across the highway into a clump of sagebrush, one of the thousands of gray-green bushes she'd seen dotting the prairies on her westward drive. Just before Copperville, she crossed a bridge sporting a Little Snake River sign an appropriate name for the serpentine curves she'd viewed from the terrace behind the chapel. She slowed. The breeze that had buffeted her car all the way from the overlook spluttered to a standstill between the crags that sheltered the small town. She downshifted, feeling light, lighter than she had in years, as if the wind had swept her sordid past onto the maternal slopes of the Sierra Madres, the Rocky Mountain mothers that straddled the Wyoming-Colorado border. Maybe she'd finally found a place to call home. Kate's stomach growled. She looked at her watch. 10.30. Not quite lunchtime, but she'd missed breakfast. No wonder her belly complained. She surveyed the few buildings she could see scattered across Copperville's rugged slopes. She'd be lucky to find a restaurant open on a Sunday morning in such a small, isolated place. She drove at a snail's pace past a Texaco station and Bogie's Bar, which flashed a neon open sign in the window. She took a second look. That was different. Pennsylvania bars didn't open until 11 on Sundays. Thank God she no longer craved alcohol the moment she awoke. 
Next came Copperville Community Bank and the cut curl and comb beauty shop. Glancing at the rearview mirror, she saw the brown pickup park in front of the bar. On the other side of the beauty shop, a fire truck, ambulance, and a police car flanked a single-story structure labeled Copperville Town Hall. Kate cringed at the sight of the police car, instantly despising her gut reaction. Oh, how she longed to be a better person, someone who stayed out of jail, someone who didn't have a criminal mentality, someone who had no reason to fear cops. Across the street from the town hall stood the Copper Fever gift shop. Main Street also hosted a small post office and a hardware grocery store. At the far end of town, across from the Sleepy Time Motel, she saw Grandma's Cafe, which appeared to be open. Several cars were parked beside it, and red shutters were f- framed a bright welcome sign. Kate flipped on the right turn signal, wondering if it was necessary when she didn't see any other cars on the road. But she had to mind her P's and Q's and stay on the good side of the local authorities. The sound of rocks crunching beneath her tires in the graveled parking lot made her think of eating rich crackers while reading in bed, something she hadn't been able to do for years. Maybe she'd stop at the store before she left town to buy crackers and paperback books. Freedom, she was learning, was as much about the small pleasures of life as it was about new opportunities. Kate locked the car and hurried toward the restaurant, anticipating home cooking in the smell of Grandma's fresh-baked bread, or maybe apple pie. Instead, she walked into a cloud of grease-laced cigarette smoke, a smell she knew all too well. Reminded of her hustling days when she worked one sleazy, smoky Pittsburgh joint after another, she considered leaving. But Grandma's was apparently the only place in Copperville to eat, and she was hungry. She glanced around the room. A group of middle-aged women chatted at a table, their voices obscured by Elvis singing from the corner jukebox about crying in a chapel. Three teenagers slouched against the old forty-five player, perusing the selections. Other patrons sat in the booths along the wall, smoke spirals rising above them. Near the door, she saw a pudgy woman with spiked hair and dangly earrings leaning against a counter, a cigarette in one hand. The bronco on her brown and gold Wyoming Cowboys t-shirt was stretched so taut it looked more like a weasel to Kate than a stallion. The waitress blew a puff of smoke. We serve breakfast and lunch until three, if that's what you're wondering. Kate dropped her keys into her purse. Funny, she'd picture Grandma in an apron, not a t-shirt. Sit where you want, Missy. The waitress aimed her cigarette toward the seating, smoking in the booths, non-smoking at the tables. Unless, she winked. Unless the boss is out of town, which he happens to be today. She flicked ashes into a small bowl. Be with you in a minute, her husky voice suggested it wasn't the first cigarette she'd ever smoked. Kate sat at a table near the door, noting the vacuum cleaner in the corner and the map of Wyoming above it. Elvis was still singing about the chapel. That's what she should have been doing at Highway Haven. Praying and crying out to God, not attacking an old lady. She studied the map until she located Copperville. The Whispering Pines guest ranch, she'd been told, was 18 miles from the town. Her insides fluttered. Something that happened every time she thought about the Whispering Pines. Not only was she finally in Wyoming, she was going to spend an entire summer working on a guest ranch. As Aunt Mary had said, who'd have thunk she'd fulfill her marketing internship in paradise? If the owners were pleased with her work and their budget allowed, they might even make her a permanent employee. She closed her eyes. It would be so wonderful to have a normal job on the outside and 
Here's your water. Kate blinked. The waitress plopped a laminated list in front of her and plunked a glass on the table. Water droplets splashed under the menu. I know you folks from back east lock your cars and expect ice in your drinks, but Harry only lets us offer it in July and August. It takes water and electricity to make ice cubes, he says, and we've been in a drought for going on six years. Uh, no problem. Just because the waitress saw her drive in didn't mean she knew all about her. Kate snapped the paper ring from the napkin that bound the silverware. Too bad she wasn't wearing your state pin ID tag. That would get the woman's attention. She unwound the napkin from the silverware and wiped the menu with it. Know what you want? The woman pulled a pad from her apron and a pencil from above her ear. Or do you need a couple minutes? I'd appreciate more time, please. I'll be back in a bit, she ambled away singing a nasal duet with Bobby Vinton. Kate studied the youths who surrounded the jukebox and who appeared to be ordinary teens. Maybe the selection didn't include recent hits. Even so, it was a change from the country-western songs most of the states this side of the Mississippi plate. She scanned the lunch menu, hoping to find something under $5. That would leave her a few dollars for gas. Someone spoke. Are you new in town or just passing through? We're going to put a follow-up quote to that by Howard Scott. Definition of a criminal. A person with predatory instincts who has not sufficient capital to form a corporation. And another one by Mark Twain. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. And one more from Bill Watterson of Calvin and Hobbes. The surest sign that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe is that it has never tried to contact us. Samuel Cronin's short story, The Shoe Tree, was published earlier this year in the Wordsmith Journal. I think you'll enjoy it. My dad used to tell me stories about a juniper somewhere in eastern Oregon decorated with hundreds of tennis shoes. He said it looked like a giant Christmas tree, the sneakers tied together, hanging limply like ornaments, flopping in the wind. I asked why people would throw shoes into a tree. Because they were worthless? No, he said. Probably because they are priceless. He said shoes are a reflection of the person who wears them, that the scuffs and scrapes are evidence of his experiences, of the trial he's overcome, and of his, cur- and of his courageous victories the best of them shared with his family. I've wondered about that. In his youth, my dad owned a pair of original Air Jordans. They had a red and white colorway with a black Nike swoosh worn by Michael Jordan in his rookie season in 1984, released to the public the year after. He received them as a gift for his 14th birthday, but soon wore them out playing all day every day in the gym. After that, they were no longer wearable, so he kept them on his bookshelf with a note taped to them. My basketball dream, NBA or bust. Later, as an all-star guard for the Grant Union prospectors, his dream to play in the NBA peaked at the time his team entered the Oregon 2A state championships his senior year. They were heavily favored to win it all, but in the first game of the tournament, Under its intense pressure, 
My dad froze up, losing his focus, committing needless fouls, turning the ball over, missing shot after shot. He said he felt like he was playing inside a seashell. The distant reverberation of the crowd and the referee's whistles and the sounds of the game all washing in and out of him. Four times the ref called him for traveling. His coach barked repeatedly at him to get his head on straight, but he was unable to recover. On a last second attempt to tie the game at the half, he shot an air ball so far off track that it bounced hard off the backboard and out of bounds. The team finished a distant seventh. None of the college recruiters approached him. The evening he returned from the tournament, he took his parents' Volvo without asking and drove all night through the countryside with his beams on low to fight the fog. So exhausted that he swerved back and forth across the lanes, dodging a cow elk until he found the shoe tree. He tossed his Air Jordans so high they wrapped around the crown. I believe his dreams ended then. After that, he gave up his desire to go to college. He wandered all over the Northwest, hopping from job to job, until he finally settled back in John Day as a stock clerk at Finley's Shoe and Boots, selling footwear more expensive than his Air Jordans. It became his career. When Finley realized he wasn't making any money, he sold the business to my dad. We were so poor that he sometimes had to borrow money to buy us the kinds of shoes he sold to others. He made me promise that I would not badger him about owning basketball shoes. But one day I saw a pair of shoes I had to have, Air Max LeBron 7s. I practically drooled over the, all over the red and white webbing and the translucent cranberry bladder. They were the coolest shoes I'd ever seen. I waved my skinny arms in front of him. Dad, can I wear these? He had a strained, thinly veiled scowl on his lips, trying to laugh with his customer, who couldn't decide if her pump should be eggshell or white. Finally, he snapped his fingers at me. Judd, he said sharply, organize the shoe polish. Dad, wait. These LeBrons are the bomb. I see that. He scratched his bare foot, having made a habit of not wearing shoes to work, convinced it helps sales. But I'm not buying you LeBrons. Why not? Because we don't have the money for it, he pleaded. Now, can I please focus on Mrs. Dalrymple? Didn't your dad buy you Air Jordans when you were 14? He glared. Those days are over, Judd. You know that. Now go into the stockroom. You can buy LeBrons when you make it to the NBA. All right, I will. He was a man who, approaching his 20th high school reunion, had nothing more to show his classmates than a man struggling to keep his shoe store from dying. At the end of every day, he would come home exhausted and grumpy, as if someone had stolen the last dollar out of his wallet. Although he never said it, everyone in the family knew he was never meant to be a shoe salesman. But he was never meant to be a basketball player either. I was determined to vindicate him. I started taking the game seriously. All through summer into the, into the fall of my eighth grade year, I did everything I could to improve, dribbling everywhere, to football practice, to the movies, to church, out of a car, traveling at 15 miles an hour. For hours on end, I stood in the rain shooting free throws. I went to basketball camp. I wanted to make him proud, to make it to the NBA myself, rescue him from his misery and disappointing past. But as the season began, I sat the bench, 
farthest from Coach Murphy. He never put me in. He said I hadn't finished growing yet. He said that when I played, I looked like a clothes hanger snapped in half. Whatever. Baker City blew us out. LeGrand blew us out. Joseph's B-team stomped us. And Burns destroyed us by 30. Our morale was crushed. During our game against Elgin, he almost put me in. But I thought I heard him mouth something about my dad costing Coach Murphy the championship. They had been teammates in high school. To make it worse, my dad wouldn't come to any of my games. I never got to hear him cheer for me. He wouldn't even come to the gym to pick me up after practice. Instead, he would sit in his car with the motor running, staring at the streetlights, his face vacant and inward. His basketball, however, would be tucked in his lap. Don't worry about it, Judd, said my mom, washing a cookie sheet. Your father is figuring things out. He loves you. He just needs some time with things. I sealed up the cookies in a Tupperware container. What things? Doesn't he care that I'm on the team? He probably cares too much, Judd. Try to forgive him. He spiraled away from our family into a terrible isolation. I didn't understand what was happening. He refused to talk to me, only to Duggan, who wasn't a basketball player at all and had no interest in the game. He'd eat alone after I went to bed. Late at night, I would hear him leave the house, wandering the lonely streets of John Day, dribbling his old leather basketball through the cones of weakened light. One evening, I followed him, watching from afar as he stopped in front of his shoe store to gaze at all the shoes in the display window that he hadn't sold and his knee was the LeBron 7s I was hoping he'd buy. He put a hand on the window, dropping his head. I thought I heard sobbing. I heard a voice whisper from behind. Your daddy do this a lot? I spun. It was Coach Murphy whispering. What are you doing here? He narrowed his eyes. I was on a stroll. He looked past me. Following him? He put his hand on my tiny shoulder and leaned in. You realize your father was the greatest basketball player ever to come out of Grand Union? Did he ever pass you the ball? He didn't really pass me the ball. Once or twice, maybe. It was his small forward. I was his small forward. But never will you see a man so much, it was so much hunger to play the game. He had the heart of a pro, but he just couldn't hit any jump shots. I mean, he shot all those jump shots. You've never met a man who could shoot all those. His voice trailed off as he pinched the bridge of his nose. If we had played, we didn't play. Um, if we had played, I would have had a scholarship. But your dad, your dad, he, he didn't follow. Th um, never mind. I'm just an eighth grade coach. Never mind. I'm not a collegiate. I'm not an engineer. How's that, Judd? There was an awkward pause between us. You know, if you could just have something from your dad. Don't I? Anything? But your dad is somewhere else. I could feel him inspecting both me and my father for a hole. My jaw burned. Well, he's right in front of me. Of me. He's not ahead of you. He's lost, trapped in a bottomless net. No one knows where he is. But what's left of him? The shell of a pea pod. 
and he's looking for something you don't ever find in life, and you might not help him find it. I can help him. Listen, Judd, you've got to play your own game. What does that have to do with my dad? I don't have a game. He turned. Now you're acting just like him. Is that why I'm not playing? He tossed an empty bottle in the trash. Can't you see why I won't play you? He turned into an alleyway. You act just like him. You're both trying to tread all over other people, stomping on every tender hope. Only you're trying to tread over your own father. For a long time, I brooded on that night. As the season progressed, I sunk further and further into that bottomless net. Even worse, my dad refused to buy me those LeBrons. Although Styx and Clausen and all the other guys on the team had brand new Nikes, which my dad had sold them, he wouldn't fork the money for my own dream, which I rededicated solely to restoring his name. So I stopped caring. I just wanted the season to end. When the day of our last game finally arrived, I stayed in my room and refused to come out, willing to skip the humiliation of riding the pine once again and the alienation of a father who cared more about his failed stab at stardom than he did his own son. So I stayed in my room all Saturday to sort things out, rather than join the team on the bus to drive all the way to Monument to risk getting doubled up again, like we had in November. The door cracked open. It was him. Can we talk? I put the pillow over my head. I felt him sitting. Listen, um, I was wondering if you might want to come with me. I'll drive you to the game. I don't want to go. I was also wondering if you'd like to come with me to Dairy Queen to get a burger and a mudslide blizzard. My treat. How did you know I like mudslides? He removed his glasses and rubbed his dark eyes. I also know that you're going through a terrible time, Judd. And I've been distant. I'm sorry. I've struggled with never making it past high school. You know that. And having you play makes me think all about that, all over again. I've been struggling with it all season and it hasn't been fair to you. But listen, I hung up those silly shoes. Your Air Jordans? I'm choosing you from now on. He scratched his long, slender foot from now on. I only wanted to restore your good name. I know that. Your heart is great. I just want to play some ball with you, so I bought you something. He opened a shoebox. Inside was the LeBrons. I was so shocked. I forgot to touch them. Please forgive me. I've wanted to see you play. I just didn't have the courage to go back into the gym. But this is the last game of your eighth grade year. You'll never have another like it. So I want to take you there myself. We bought food and headed west for Monument, my gym bag in the back. While we drove together, I felt something loosen. Dad, could you have played for the Bulls? I took a bite of my burger. I wasn't good enough. Could you have played in college? It doesn't matter. I wouldn't want to. I looked at him incredulously. But Dad, everyone says you were the greatest player ever to come out of Grant Union. You could have been on Jay Leno. Why did you hang up your shoes? Because I found something better. He patted my bony knee. That's ridiculous. I told you if I hadn't gone up to Washington after high school, I'd never have met your mom. But I have mom 
and Duggan and you now. I'm a shoe dad. I don't want to go back. I had never thought that he'd prefer to be poor and hungry and tied down to a family. You shouldn't have let your life fall apart like that, I said. We'd be living in the Windy City right now. I'd be hanging out with Michael Jordan and Ferris Ferris Bueller. He smiled. I'm serious. Everyone at school says, I'm bad at passing the ball. I dribble it off my foot. I'm worthless on the court. Why didn't you buy me? Oh, gosh. Don't worry. We'll get there. No, Dad. I forgot my LeBrons. It was getting dark as we as we round through the hills. I was terrified thinking about the humiliation I'd feel when Coach Murphy and Clawson and Sticks found out I'd left my shoes. The teasing would never end. We came onto a straightaway. My dad pulled across the road and parked. In the headlights stood the shoe tree. It was taller than I'd imagined. And all throughout its branches, countless sneakers hung limply in the icy light. Whether worn and faded or soulless with holes in the toes, the shoes seemed to be waiting either to be claimed or forgotten. I could see why they said it was an ornamental tree. But how easy was it to take down a pair and start a new dream? Dad, this is ridiculous. Terribly ridiculous. But look at all those shoes. They're falling apart. So what? Humans fall apart, he said. I snorted. This is so stupid. I'm not wearing any of those shoes. It didn't deter him. To my amazement, he climbed the tree. When he returned to the car, he was holding his pair of red and white shoes with black Nike swoosh. His Air Jordans. Go on, Judd. Try them. They're nines. The cracked leather scored and weathered. The torn swooshes. The ripped stitching. The wide gashes in the toes and along the soles made the shoes seem fit for a mummy, not for a teenage boy. I took off my glasses and rubbed my haggard eyes. Are these really them? Until tonight, he grinned. They're yours now. Try them on. So I did. I walked around in the gravel. They were stiff. The shoelaces frayed. The soles flopping. But I could still sprint. We drove the rest of the way to Monument in silence for I felt something high and tingling at the back of my neck. I couldn't believe what I was wearing, these legendary sneakers that had meant so much to my dad and so much more to me. When my teammates saw my shoes, they laughed. Sticks ripped off one of the swooshes. Clausen stepped on my toes. Coach Murphy sneered. Those are the ugliest shoes, Craig, he said to my dad. You failing to live your dream all over again through your small fry? My dad ignored him. He sat in the stands. I didn't mind the teasing. I didn't mind being stomped on because we were together that night. Craig, where you been keeping those shoes? They look like dog toys. Your son can't play in these. He's already played, Dad said, spinning his basketball. He'll never stop playing. I sat the bench the entire game. Even though Clausen and Sticks fouled out, Coach refused to play me. We lost by 30 with only four on the court, but it was the best game of my life because I was wearing my dad's shoes and he was sitting behind me. I knew that though we were not good enough in the eyes of our teammates and coaches, we had found the game inside us to keep playing no matter how frail or worn. Afterward, we wound through the hills, the heater thrumming against my cold toes. I tipped my seat back and closed my eyes. 
And we drove like that for some time with the sleet smacking the windshield. Dad turned the wipers on high. Dad? Hmm? Is it okay if I don't make it to the NBA? We rounded a corner, and before us was the shoe tree. I told him to stop. I got out and stood barefoot in the sleet, and my dad joined me. I tied our Air Jordans together, tossed them into the tree. They wrapped around a branch and hung limply like a worn-out trophy. He put his, he put his warm hand on my frail neck. We said nothing, but we didn't need to, experiencing a closeness we'd never known before, tied with a love between us, dangling from above. Our next author, Kay Painter, is a tireless defender of babies in utero and founder of Remembering Sarah Ministries International. She's spoken at United Nations and White House forums, given her testimony on national and international television and radio programs, and has been featured in newspapers and magazine articles. She's also been on 21 international tours in 13 countries. Information about her work can be found at Remembering Sarah, that's S-A-R-A, dot org. Here's an excerpt from her book titled From Sin and Sorrow to Service, The Journey of God's Prodigal Daughter. This excerpt is from Chapter 2. Not long after Susie was born, I began to notice changes in our marriage. I knew Jeff's brother had a terrible temper, but I never thought the same might be true of Jeff. During almost a year of dating, he seemed shy, almost bashful. The angry side of him had remained hidden. Now Jeff's temper reared its ugly head more and more frequently. In spite of the outbursts, Jeff and I desperately wanted to have another child, but I was unable to conceive. Doctors could find nothing wrong, and after numerous tests, they simply said, You just may not get pregnant again. Both Jeff and I had been late-in-life babies from our parents, virtually a second family. We had been raised more like single children, but we wanted companionship for Susie. We wanted her to have a sister with whom to grow up, to love, to play with, and even to share. We were realistic enough to know there would also be the typical sibling disagreements over toys, cookies, and clothing. We began the adoption process, completing our paperwork and waiting expectantly for the next step, the personal interviews. And they were very personal. We were interviewed together and individually, asked questions about our sex life, and on one visit the social worker even opened our dresser drawers and searched our attic. We both wanted to challenge the encroachment of our privacy, but did not want to jeopardize our chances for the baby. We bit our tongues and smiled. I was so fearful of Jeff's temper during this long period of stress, perhaps because of the sincere desire we both had to have additional children He kept it well in check. I kept thinking another set of feet, and the house would fill the ever-growing emptiness I felt. The day finally arrived when the caseworker handed us our prospective new daughter. One look at her, and we both fell in love. Beautiful golden blonde hair with just a couple curls flowing down her back, the biggest and deepest blue eyes full of wonder. The county had been unable to locate the baby's biological father, so she was ineligible for adoption, until after a one-year waiting period. 
Oddly enough, we began the process of intruding awkward interviews and inspections just about the time she was born. Once we held her, there was no question she was meant to be ours. We wanted to take her home right then and there, but were forced to wait 30 days to be sure we would not change our minds. We were, however, granted three-hour visitations once a week to help her with the adjustments that were just ahead. While we excitedly counted the days of that very long month, Jeff intermittently continued to find fault with my actions or suggestions. Although to me they were very trivial things, the verbal abuse on these issues told me they were critical issues to him. A new physical component component to his temper, although infrequent, was becoming more and more a concern. Deidre Ann came to us on the day after her first birthday. I will always remember the surge of emotions that swept through me as this innocent, helpless toddler was handed to me. From the minute I held her, I knew she would be the next addition to our family, and we would not relinquish this young child. However, this huge dramatic change was one in which Deidre herself had no choice. She was merely snatched from the arms of the foster parents she had known for the last few months and handed over to us with little more than, Here she is. It was completely overwhelming to me to realize how one second we were visitors, then seconds later responsible for her. It was also disappointing as we observed how callously this transaction was handled with regard to Deidre's feelings, fears, and expectations. With her worldly possessions collected in a single paper shopping bag and totally without a voice in her own destiny, Deidre's only action was to search my eyes with a questioning, penetrating look in her own blue eyes. We scurried home to where grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends waited with hugs and a belated birthday party. Dee Dee had been in three foster homes that first year, but adapted well. One lingering symptom of her insecurity was that she would clutch my left pant leg, clinging with all her might and following me everywhere. The most unsettling indication of her previous misfortunes was when I would move the furniture while vacuuming the living room. Dee Dee would go to a corner, sit, and quietly sob. She had already had enough change to last a lifetime. Dee Dee was soon in love with her big sister. Susie welcomed the new addition with excitement. The two soon became inseparable and settled into a lifelong friendship. It is strange the things we remember. One Easter we gave each of the girls a baby duck. Squeals of joy met the fluffy little yellow babies that morning, and the girls held them constantly while considering names for their new pets. It was a day or so later when they decided to take the baby ducks up into their treehouse. Dee Dee made the fatal mistake of thinking that her bird could fly. She gently gave it a little shove off the ledge of the treehouse floor, then watched in dismay as it plummeted to the ground, landing with a thud. The sweet, innocent fluffball lay lifeless as both Susie and Dee Dee screamed at the top of their lungs. I rushed outside to utter confusion. The girls were trying to figure out what had gone wrong. Dee Dee only wanted to help it fly. A brief but very heart-rending memorial service was held in our backyard that afternoon, and our conversation at the dinner table was about Duck's lack of ability to fly, and why. Our little town held an annual festival. At this event, they held a community-wide beauty pageant in which a junior and senior court was selected. When Dee Dee was six years old, we entered her in the junior court selection, and she was chosen to be one of the princesses. Our daughter would represent our town in parades and celebrations, making appearances throughout our county during the summer. On one particular day, Dee Dee was to ride a float in her first appearance as a princess. 
Jeff had work to do. Bales of hay needed to be put in the barn since rain was predicted for the next day. If the hay got wet, it would reduce its selling price, so Jeff felt it was necessary for him to stay behind and get them protected. As we prepared to leave, I lamented several times how much we would miss him and wished he would come with us. I even offered to help later. I could drive the truck while he loaded the bales of hay. Then he could join us for the momentous event. After thinking a minute, Jeff smiled and agreed. We would work together through the night to secure the hay. He would finish the essential chores and be able to see the parade as well. The afternoon made us both so proud. Aditi was adorable on the float, waving to the onlookers. As the float passed us, we burst with pride. She could not have been more our daughter. Being adopted made no difference to us as her parents. She proved it was the same for her, as she called, Hi, Mommy. Hi, Daddy, before moving on down the street. Later, we slipped into our work clothes at home, prepared to work into the night to get the hay into the barn. Working at a good pace, the girls were curled up in the truck cab beside me, sleeping soundly after the big day. We had hauled several loads when the sky began to open up. My stomach nodded as the first sprinkles of rain hit the windshield. Jeff was getting angry. Minutes later, he jumped into the truck so we could get what hay we had loaded to the barn quickly. I hurriedly drove to the barn in an attempt to protect the hay, but I was definitely not able to protect myself. Jeff's scathing words began to tell me in no uncertain terms. It was my fault. We had just lost several hundred dollars worth of sales. He reasoned if I had not convinced him to go to the parade, if he had just stayed home, our hay would already have been stored when it began to rain. His humiliation in me continued. I was such a useless wife, not a helpmate, but a waste and a hindrance to everyone. I had heard it all before, and I was convinced I deserved every word of his verbal assault. I wondered if perhaps God created me as a joke. Did he create me because someone needed a target or a punching bag? Jeff ran it on. I had never seen my parents fight. Never. I could tell when there was discord in the house, but any dispute was always settled privately. Since I had not been taught a method of diffusing arguments, I did the only things I knew to do. Retreat, apologize, beg for forgiveness, and accept full responsibility. I truly believed I was responsible for the situation because of what Jeff called my lapses of judgment. How could we have been so blind? The answer for us, God's word, lay within arm's reach at the head of our bed or often was still riding around the back seat of the car. But we ignored it. Slowly I began to withdraw, never sure what I might say or do to bring, up, bring on the next flare-up. During one particularly ugly argument, I found myself on the kitchen floor. I remember waking up with Jeff's face inches from mine, shaking me and telling me I was faking unconsciousness after his abuse had become physical and then he'd knocked me out. I have no idea how long I was oblivious to my surroundings. Another time I was told to have new tires put on our car. Given all the information, I was instructed to leave by 10 o'clock in the morning so I would be home no later than 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Jeff would be home by then and I was to be there when he arrived. For some reason, I did not leave by the appointed time and found myself with a very narrow margin of time to complete my tasks and return. With the tires replaced, I sped for home to avoid any trouble. Then disaster struck. The front passenger tire fell off the rim. My car was dragging down the street on the drum. Once I safely pulled the car to a stop, I ran to a nearby house to call for help. Thankfully, the left Schwab truck arrived in minutes. Discovering the mechanics had not tightened the lug nuts properly, the technicians wanted to take the car back to the shop to correct the mistake. I knew I was already close to being late, so I begged them to just do the best they could and let me get home. It was vital. 
I was afraid the tire would come off again, but I was more afraid of what Jeff would do if I arrived home late. I drove home as swiftly as I could. When the driveway came into view, my heart sank. Jeff's car was already in the garage. I knew I was in for a challenging afternoon. Angry words and accusations flew at me, along with questions as to why I had not left home at the appointed time. My explanations were not enough to calm Jeff's anger. He picked up his new watch from the kitchen table and threw it onto the sidewalk outside the back door, where it shattered into a million pieces. His shouting continued. Why did you pretend to have a brain of your own? Why hadn't you done what you were told to do? Crying and pleading for his forgiveness, I apologized as I gathered the broom and began cleaning up the mess. The yelling continued. See what you made me do? You did this. It was your fault. Do you enjoy upsetting me? With each occurrence of such outburst, the void inside me grew larger and the isolation deepened. Why was I ever born? What purpose did I serve? Well, that kind of leaves you hanging, doesn't it? Here's a poem by Eugene Shea that does not leave you hanging. It's called Backseat Driver. This will turn the corner a little bit. Backseat Driver. Her mother came to live with them shortly after her father died. My husband was the best driver in town, to son-in-law, she confided with pride. The reason he was such a good driver was that I coached him all of our days. And I'll do the same for you, my son, and train you in my husband's ways. Another backseat driver he did not need. His, his wife's advice was more than enough. He'd convinced his wife to hold her tongue till mother arrived and called his bluff. But her backseat driving was short-lived. Her chance to instruct him, she blowed. From her rear, her rear-facing seat in the trunk, she couldn't see enough of the road. <laughs> Okay, Eugene Shea, thank you for that. A few more quotes, and we'll finish up. This one by Franklin Roosevelt, or Roosevelt, depending on how you like to say that. Human kindness has never weakened the stamina or softened the fiber of a free people. A nation does not have to be cruel in order to be tough. You know, when you look at the headlines, and think of that quote. Uh, continuous effort, not strength or intelligence, is the key to unlocking our potential. That's Winston Churchill. And a final one by our 21st century sage, Woody Allen. If only God would give me some clear sign, like making a large deposit in my name in a Swiss bank. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.